Grapple fan, and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something. It's been a few weeks, but we're finally adding a new chapter to the ongoing epic that is the Meltzer Five Star Project. We discuss every match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has given five stars or higher. And as we found out recently, that doesn't even necessarily mean he likes the match. But we'll talk about that as the episode progresses. And by we, I mean your co-host Lorcan Mullen and your chuckling other co-host... Simon Cross. Simon, what match are we talking about that Dave Meltzer went the full five stars for? We are talking about the IWGP World Heavyweight title. Ah, oh, still sounds weird. Defence uh, of Shingo Takagi defending against Hiroshi Tanahashi. Late replacement Hiroshi Tanahashi. It's crazy to think at one point the plan was for this mid-year Tokyo Dome match to be headlined by an IWGP title match between Will Ospreay and Kazuchika Okada. Three substitutions later, (laughs) we're at a rematch of one of the other five-star matches of this year so far, but that one was for the Never Openweight Championship, which saw Hiroshi Tanahashi dethrone Shingo Takagi. And will he succeed this time for the next step up belt? That's the fusing of the other two belts that were around at that point. Although, to be fair, that was still, I don't know. New Japan's It's weird. all confusing. Yeah, mm. it's been a weird... New Japan's had a, it's had a strange stretch. And, and also, if it had any luck, it had bad luck. Yeah. So far, with the continuing situation covid getting very bad in japan the vaccination rate being nowhere near as high there as it is in places like the us and the uk Mm. and also the tokyo olympics and everything else on top of things leading to this match taking place in a it's so odd seeing the tokyo dome lit and barely populated the funny thing is i think in the bad days of new japan's business like the late 2000s and early 2010s, the crowds might not have been that different in number. (laughs) But because it's usually all blacked out, you can't really tell. Yeah. But with this one, they've gone full natural light to show just how sparsely populated. Although, to be fair, there were a number of fans up in the stands. So my estimate... It was weird. There was like barely anyone in the middle bit. At all. And there were just some nosebleeds or floor seats. So maybe the pricing structure was wrong. And my estimate would be maybe something like 5,000 people there. Maybe. Rough numbers. Yeah. 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 Rough numbers, but not a rough match. Although there's some hearty strike exchanges, (laughs) as you might expect. Oh, they get rough and ready with each other, that's for sure. That was less dirty in my head before I said it. Yeah, but Tanahashi does that to anyone's head, doesn't he? Oh, she's so gorgeous. (laughs) So this is Takagi's first defense of the title, I believe. Yes. Having won it in a surprise against Kazuchika Okada. And then immediately challenging Kota Ibushi to be his first challenger. And that was the plan. Until Ibushi suffered from, I think it's a form of pneumonia. It is pneumonia. A variant of pneumonia. And they didn't know for certain until basically the day of the show. 
And on the previous night's Tokyo Dome show, Hiroshi Tanahashi had defeated Kenta to cap off that feud and said he is a willing participant to step up to the spot. In, in many ways, kind of along the lines of John Cena, <laughs> except the mag- this is a more magnanimous gesture than what John Cena did on SmackDown in order to get his uh, title shots. So the previous match that they'd had had been a great example of Tanahashi having enough wherewithal in his brain to make up for what's lacking with his body. And that is really the story of this. It's so weird when a man looks that good and it's like his body's... You have to remember that he is basically held together by prayer and sheer (laughs) will at this point. (laughs) He's like Rey Mysterio, just somehow, some way, still going. Like, it's insane. (laughs) Many of us dream of having a broken down body (laughs) that looks like that. Yeah, like, oh, I got in a heartbeat. If you offered me Tanahashi, like, to have Tanahashi's body as mine, I'd uh, in a heartbeat have it. And his hair and his face. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All of it. I'll take the package deal, please. It'd be a freaky, like, big situation, you know, when Tom Hanks comes (laughs) out of the uh, bathroom and the mom freaks out. The mom might freak out in a completely different way if it was Hiroshi Tanahashi. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, mom! Do you know it's like when Shingo walks to the ring, he already... Because he was never... I mean, you've said in the past, like in previous episodes, you didn't think he'd ever become champion. Qualifier, obviously, that New Japan's going through its very odd stroke, patchwork, get-through-it phase that life's thrown at it. He, He strikes me as like having a champion's presence. I don't know if that's because... It's a relatively new belt that I'm more okay with it or not. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, I think Takagi's always been a great performer. He was a main eventer in Dragon Gate for years. So he knows how to present that aura of being the best in the company. Mm. And he's a, got a cool look. He's a fantastic worker. I'm sure he bets entirely on himself as being capable of getting up to the top part of the New Japan card. Yeah. And I didn't dispute. I didn't think it was impossible that they thought he was potential for it, but I also didn't think that was their like their end goal with him. Their end goal. He came in partly to fill up the numbers of Los Ingobernables whilst Takahashi was off, and then he just steadily kept matching every hurdle they put in front of him, like leaping over it. And I think I've said in the previous episodes, I think the key thing that really won him over to management was his performance against Okada in the G1, where he, more than anyone, made the money clip look good. (laughs) He did something that no one else has been able to do, including Okada, (laughs) with that move. So at that point, I knew, I I always thought that that the goal with him was maybe he would be the guy that took over Tomohiro Ishii's place in the card. Yes. And... And maybe if similarly New Japan a few years ago when Ishii was at his most popular had had this mass injury, pandemic, not crisis situation, maybe they would have put either the heavyweight or the intercontinental belt on Ishii. A man can dream. Mm. I love him. I love Ishii. Yeah, but I do like that Takagi is presented as the more likely winner. Obviously because... Tanashi had had a match the night before and is broken down. Yeah. And so Takagi does overwhelm him at the start of the match. But what I think is also good is that I was trying to remember what I could of the Never Open White title. And I remember one of the things that Takagi always did was 
somewhat bait Tanahashi in those matches, like kick at him lightly to to bring him up. And he only really does that once in this match. There's almost so there's maybe that sign of like a a maturity or a lesson learned from that match. Don't yeah, gross. He knows what Tanahashi's still capable of and doesn't want to get caught out twice. He's taking him like seriously. Not that he didn't in the never open weight, but like okay, more seriously. He's he's vicious at the start, but there's those couple of moments in like the very early exchanges where like Hiroshi gets like an ankle pick and like gets him to the mat like quite quickly. And like that's a great way of showcasing that he's got that brain, that big beefy brain to match his big beefy body. And he does do the classic thing that Tanahashi does, which is go after the knee. That's his first real opening. But he also doesn't make that like the sole focus of the match. The the, the knee work for Tanahashi and the arm work for Takagi that was as prominent in the Never Open Weight title isn't as prominent in this one. But it is a sense of Tanahashi finding his moments, finding his opportunities, and also just having that sheer willpower to succeed. Like there's a moment where Takagi hits him with forearms and everything, and he stays there reminiscent in many ways to the G1 Climax final that he had with Kota Ibushi, yeah. where he just kept going forward. The be a survivor term that was at the time, and that's what Tanahashi still is at this point. He's a survivor. He can absorb incredible amounts of punishment. And I think that was what was the key in this match. It wasn't so much Tanahashi being able to outthink his out opponent, or out-strategize his opponent, which it was in the previous match. This is one thinking... He's been in these world title situations, these Tokyo Dome main event situations, and he might just have enough within him to withstand the punishments that Takagi might not. And Takagi doesn't take too many huge moves in this match. But he does take some. Tanahashi weathers a storm, but when he gets an opportunity, when he hits that first dragon screw, he then, like, it's sort of like a punches in bunches kind of thing. He, he like... Rips open that like gap and like hammers a load of like dragon screws in as quickly as he possibly can. But it's not like uh, he's moving pieces around a chessboard to do it, it's more like, oh my god, he's given like there's an opening, just fire everything into that opening and try and like force an advantage. And that's so often what he does in those situations that he does the, the big spot, which is knocking Takagi to the outside and then hitting a high fly flow. Like having to hit the huge move to make up for all the punishment that he's taken, trying to hurt Takagi to the same degree. Like they, you know, if they've got health bars, they'd be at the same point. But it's just because he's done this massive move on him. Yeah, and it was funny as well. I was just watching, listening to Lance Storm discussing dives in wrestling, and saying that one of the one of the mistakes a lot of people do with dives, and they were talking about the Stu Grayson dive that no one courts in the five-on-five elimination match. He said one of the big problems with that is that Stu Grayson was flipping and spinning and everything, even when he was landing. So it was almost like they wouldn't know where to go to catch him. And when there's flying elbows and limbs everywhere, and it's even harder to know how to catch him, and also it was like a confluence of unfortunate situations that the way he was going, if they had gone to catch him, there's a decent chance they could have got an elbow or a knee somewhere and like a broken nose or something. So all of them would have been a bit more reluctant there. And they also think there's four of us. So if I don't catch him, it might not be so bad. Unfortunately, all five people thought that at the same time. Whereas Tanahashi, when he's doing the high fly flow, is giving the widest space available for his opponent to catch him. And it's a nasty landing as well. It looks like he really badly might have genuinely hurt his knees in the yeah. process. He takes a bad tumble off. A great bit of commentary where I think it's Chris 
goes, did he, did he hit his knee? And then, like, Tanahashi's just, like, grimacing, like, holding it. It's like, yes, he did. <laughs> well, Bret Hart would be great at that as well. I remember in the WrestleMania 10 match against Owen Hart when he hits him with a, a Pescado, a flying body press, to the outside. He lands and immediately grabs his knee, and that gives Owen the opening to go after his knee. I swear Meltzer made a comparison to Bret Hart in his, like, writing about this match and it was, it was to do with Tanahashi's facial expressions but I, I swear that comparison is in that article yeah here we go I've got it here Tanahashi is more about using facial expression and timing to get you into the match when it comes to that he's like Bret Hart only for a much longer period of time and lucky enough to have a far better history of opponents when it comes to storytelling psychology and ability to make a match a classic big match Tanahashi may be the greatest big match wrestler in history but what, but what Tanahashi always does is he makes these moves work better than anyone in making it matter. And he makes these spots that can bother you in other areas not be a problem with this. Like I've said, you know, I've made it kind of my catchphrase, the reverse Rana. Tanahashi's way of doing a reverse Rana, his reasoning for doing it, the way he positions himself, and the way he executes the move where he places it in the match. I've never seen a Tanahashi reverse Rana spot that's made me go, a reverse Rana! <laughs> that's gratuitous. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying, because... Because a friend of mine, a friend of mine, texted me today when Tanahashi was announced for the uh, IWGP US title match against Lance Archer, and he said he'd never seen Tanahashi. He said, "Is he any good?" And I said, "You can make a case that he is one of the best wrestlers of all time, and that if I was to ever make my list of my top ten favorite wrestlers, I think he would probably be on that list." Mm. And that really sh- like amazed him. So. We'll, we'll have to see at a later date of what he thinks. Actually, that's something that I will be curious. Will he play up the broken down old timer when he goes out to this American audience? Or will he be like as much big match Tanahashi as it's just about special appearance, one-off, I'm going to give you the greatest hits. Kind of how Jushin Liger works when he goes outside of New Japan. Yeah. When he goes to NXT. He doesn't play up that he's the wise old veteran it's like, here's the copo kick, here's the brain buster, here's the shote, here I am in my suit and, and doing the whole shebang, and I'll do a little play up for the local audience by, you know, doing Tyler Breeze's spot with the selfie stick or whatever. And will Tanahashi become as close as Tanahashi can be to prime era Hiroshi Tanahashi doing his very best moves and his most spectacular moves to get a pop from a... a I mean, it will be an informed audience, but not necessarily... The smartest... In terms no, of not like necessarily his... the most Tanahashi savvy. Yeah, sorry, I meant smartest in terms of like wisened up, like wrestling wise. So Tanahashi and Takagi do not your greatest hits, but it's the the traditional format of the main events, and these guys are so good at it, and they give you some really good fa- false finishes. I think the sequence where Tanahashi hits out of nowhere the uh, Kamagoye, yes, follows it up with the high fly flow. If I had not known the result going into the match, I would have thought that could be... I can totally see this as the finish. I 100% agree with that. Counterpoint was the cloverleaf spot. Shingo's facial expressions in that moment, his selling, is excellent. But also, Tanahashi does such a great... Working the move in a way that you can understand what he's doing to the knee as well. Because you don't usually associate the the cloverleaf is a move that will hurt the knee more than anything but you can see what he's doing with it to like it's both a knee and a back especially when he cranks it back like lion tamer style but then like it's for the extra effort he has to put in like 
it's great camera work, but you see the grip where he's holding on by yeah. a finger, not the whole hand. Mm. I think that's a great little subtle thing there. Just like, like mm. this extra aggression within the move comes at a cost in terms of like technique. Well, I think what is great with this as well is that it's allowing Takagi to be the champion. And what the champion so often does is they have to beat an opponent at their best. And there has to be that sense of that was what Okada was always so good at doing, that he goes through a war, but he finds something within him to survive and win. Yeah. That's what champions do. And so I think this was a great presentation of making Takagi look like a champion. And someone that has already beaten him. I mean, it's so perfect, an op- opening, like this incredibly infor- unfortunate opportunity. But you have the guy right there who works within main eventing a Tokyo Dome match, who has had some losses that in that year within his story, but has the win over Takagi that makes him the perfect challenger. At the time that Jay White or someone else that could be in it is not available. Mm. Naito's tied up in the tag team title scene and he's also another uh, Ingo Benabale, so maybe they wouldn't have wanted to do it anyway. I mean, fuck's sake, they've had to bring Evil back for the next title match. So, you know, they're, they're, they're scant on quality opposition at this point. So it's so weird. It's almost like, you know, we always say that Gado's booking at times has almost felt like a perfectly mapped out story for like multiple years. It's like this is almost like he's maybe during that whole time he's also had perfectly mapped out backup storylines because we always say when people fantasy book they never take into account injuries, pandemics. Maybe Gado's been doing that. Maybe Gado always has had these backups storylines, like you know, because it does fit in perfectly. I think he's a man who fix who who thinks quickly, who reacts well. I, I would mm. say. I think personally, he probably wants another crack at Evil as a main eventer to see if he can do it. Maybe it's like a, p- a point of pride for like Gado now. It's like I, I want another another shot where I can see if I can if I can make this happen. So Tanahashi's kind of doing his classic stuff. I do love when they're exchanging forearms. They're screaming each other's names at each other. <laughs> like they're trying to will each other to give their best. Shingo does that an awful, awful lot in this match. <laughs> Well, maybe because Tanahashi is like this thing that's on his mind. Like, it's really important to him to beat Tanahashi. Or Tanahashi's ears are so cauliflowered, he has to let him know when he's hitting him. That's a joke. But weirdly, because it's a crowd that can't make any noise in a huge stadium, they work that when they're doing those forum exchanges. So just echoing around this stadium is them grunting, smacking each other, and the crowd clapping along. It's like... I kind of liked how it was acoustically. For that reason, it sort yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. They made they made something out of a very bad situation. They made a positive... It emphasised the war that they were having. Like, mm. it, But it didn't feel sterile. Like, very, like most matches in the pandemic era, before having like a large-scale audience, uh, have. The notable exception obviously being Walter Dragunov, where they made up for the lack of sound by like caving each other's chests in. <laughs> yeah, that's another way of doing it. Maybe if that's the best example of a match in front of no fans, maybe this was one of the best examples of a match in front of very sparse crowd in a, in a huge arena. Mm. Uh, I did think also what I loved is that Takagi knew that Tanahashi on the top rope was trouble. So before, I mean, what led to the Kamigoye high-fly flow the false finish was him desperately clutching at Tanahashi's leg whilst Tanahashi was trying to get to the top rope to slow him down and I do love as well that when Tanahashi has that opening after he hits him with the headbutts which is a callback first of all to the, the exchange they'd had earlier on where 
Takagi had tried to hit him with the forearms and Tanahashi was like hulking up, like I said, with, in the G1 climax final against Ibushi. So Takagi just headbutts him to send him down. Mm. And so when Tanahashi does the similar thing of hitting the headbutt, which also they said is like kind of a, a shout out to Shibata, who's his longtime partner, who'd been in his corner or been watching the match the night before against Kenta, is that um, <laughs> there was a look in Tanahashi's eyes like, God, I've gone, I've really gone far with it now. I yeah. know he really used to be this guy. And also maybe just like, oh man, this guy's head really hurts when your head butts it. <laughs> like, what is he made of? The, the sheer exhaustion is then when he goes over the top rope, you know, he does his classic, like I've always said, my favourite way of escaping the ring to go and set up a top rope move. He has to take him a bit longer and those split seconds of it taking him longer to from landing on the apron to climbing up the ropes and then whilst on the ropes taking longer to find his balance is enough for Takagi to get to him on the on the corner and that's where they have their fight out with the big headbutts who's going to get control and finally Takagi gets him up in the fireman's carry and I love that Tanahashi's elbowing him to try to escape and Takagi uses that to capture his arm mid-elbow strike and that sets him up for the last of the dragon that he does off the second rope. I would argue that should have been the finish. Because all that happens after that is that he hits it again, slightly slightly not perfectly, and that gets the three count. And obviously we followed, we sort of said that's almost like the all Japan finishes where they hit them with everything and then sometimes it's just one final elbow that's the last bit of yeah. energy bar being escaped. But I think you end on the high note personally. I think he hit the gap between the move and the cover was slightly too short for a, a finisher off the second rope. Like if I'm if I'm really really splitting hairs, no, I, I don't know that I would agree with that. But they have done that. They did it earlier on that when he hit one of his big moves because he'd just been beaten up by Tanahashi for ages that he could barely cover him, and that gave Tanahashi yeah. enough of the spot. And it took him ages to get to him that that gave Tanahashi enough time to be able to kick out. That's the match. I really enjoyed it. I wouldn't go five stars. My personal rating would be somewhere around the four and a half area. I think. Partly because it's just the same formula over and over again, and I think I preferred more the the more strategic version of this match, which was the never open weight match, than mm. this one, which was like the classic big match main events that I think I've seen too many times at this point. I loved it. I didn't five star love it. I think I sit in the same region as you. Four, four and a half if I ha- if I was to give a rating. Yeah. Now, this is the other thing I wanted to quickly talk about because this has been a point of contention in the latest Observer as well. We were just saying about how he was comparing Tanashi to Bret Hart, which is something I've often said. So this was his notes on the Chris Jericho-Nick Gage match that I haven't watched all of yet. So I don't know if I want to. But this was, a, this was his notes on it at the end. This match was insane. I hated it personally. But it absolutely worked to the live crowd and you really have to go four stars or even more for it because it both worked for the audience and as far as the execution and building, it was great. So this is eliminating your own preferences and implying there's some sort of mathematical objectivity to your ratings. Yeah. Which I personally don't agree with. And... I think that was a mistake on Meltzer's part. I think he should have said what he would give it and say, but I can understand. Because I've seen, like, you know, I, I'll go on the other end of the scale. Like, one of my favourite films of recent years was Mandy, starring Nick Cage. I love that match. Uh, that movie, sorry. There is a match in it between two guys wielding chainsaws. That's a good match. But, um... <laughs> 
if someone says that's the worst film I've ever seen, I wouldn't say you're wrong. I would understand that stance. Or that's or at least maybe ever seen would be a bit harsh. If they said that's the worst film I've seen this year, I would understand. But because of that, I'm not gonna go lower on my ratings for Mandy. You know? Yeah. Similarly, like I hate Requiem for a Dream. I hate that film. I will hopefully rewatch it for twenty first film and see how I feel about it like twenty years after seeing it. But I can understand why other people think it's a fantastic film. I just didn't buy it. But that doesn't mean I give that movie five stars or four stars. You know, I give it my rating based on my experience because I can only speak for myself. And I think Meltzer's made a mistake implying that his star ratings are some objective outside of personal preferences and prejudices. It's impossible. So just lean into the personal element of it. Yeah, but I think if he does that, then he runs the risk of people going, well, then we're just listening to an Amanda. It's 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 an impossible balance to strike. And he's but just I think he always to... thought that was the case. And I think it's only been recently because people obsess about the rating system, especially since he, since he gave six stars to that Okada Omega match, that that's been more of an important thing. And obviously... We're leaning into it by talking about the Meltz Five Star Project. Yes. And I sometimes think maybe we should be discussing more Meltz's personal preferences because it's obvious he loves All Japan in the 90s, All Japan women in the late 80s and early 90s, New Japan of the 2010s, NXT of the mid to late 2010s, mm. and some of the early 80s NWA stuff, including like the War Games bloodbath stuff. That's what he likes, and that's fine. And that's what we're bringing to this. If I had to give my film example to like sort of hammer home the point, I love the movie Wild Wild West because okay. it's just big, stupid, dumb fun. But Are you liking that on an ironic level? No. Or is this sincere? Do you think it's sincerely a good movie? I see, I see. Or are you getting a kick out of its 90s-ness? I, I get a kick out of how big and dumb and silly it is. But does it know how big and dumb... This is like the Richard Madeley. Is he, is he aware of the Alan Partridge-ness? Well, I don't... I don't... we were discussing before recording. Personally, that doesn't matter to me. Whether it thinks it's not. I'm not watching it for that level of, like, irony. Of, like, I'm not looking for... But that seems to be why you say you like it. No, no. I'm not looking at it, like, looking for it to give me a wink. Going, like, we know we're big and dumb. I, I like it you just because it is. wink there, yes. Yes. Because I know Sam Hyatt looks pretty good in that film. Ah. So I was just wondering. But um, and Will Smith too, to be fair. Yeah, but no, I just like that it's just ridiculously silly. I like that about it. Mm, mm. And like a lot of people say, it's like one of the weaknesses in Will Smith's repertoire and blah blah blah. But I think it's just big, silly, dumb fun. So, what rating would you give Wild Wild West then? Like probably out if, if out of five, probably a good four. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's enjoyable. I've never seen it, so I can't comment. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair. Even though I love Mandy, and I think that might be a film I watch more than any other film in the future of that year, it's not actually one of the ones... I sometimes think, should I give this... What I gave it... For, and it doesn't mean anything... You can read my Instagram account to see what I think of what ratings are, but I did give it 8 out of 10, partly because I felt like there were flaws within it, and I don't wonder if that's me more looking at it through like my analytical... I've watched a load of video essays brain. Mm. you know, And so a lot of the times... Like, I'll appreciate a film on a technical level, even if it's incompetence, and not go as bad on its ratings as, like, I maybe should have done. 
you find it hard to it, like? Well, the ones, the ones are like what the weird ones are like ones that can utterly defy ratings anyway. And I think maybe Chris Jericho and Nick Gage is something that defies ratings in that sense. Or like when I saw, I saw the new M Night Shyamalan film, Old, and it's like there's so much in it that's good, but there's so much in it that's bad. And and so then, what do you give it? Do you give it like a five or a six out of ten? But that just seems to that doesn't that doesn't say that doesn't say what this film is. Because to most people, it's either going to be like an eight or a f- or a, or a two or a three, so you know, and that's why ratings are dumb as as well. But it's like I can't deny the things I like, but I also will not deny the things I didn't like either. Yeah. And so that's why I had to go. I was the same with Zardoz recently, which I did, which we did a best of worst of British in, in that it's bad on so many levels and so self indulgent. But I can't deny that it entertained me. And that it had things that it wanted to say that I found interesting. So I ended up giving it a 5 out of 10. But there's no way... Like, a 5 out of 10 just things like, seems like a film that would just wash over you. And you're just like, yeah, that was fine. Yeah. Whatever. I'll forget about it. You can't forget about Zardoz after you've seen Zardoz. But I can't give it an 8 or a 9 out of 10, which is, like, a really good film. But also, I don't want to give it, like, this is the worst film I've ever seen sort of ratings. Which one of the guys we did it with is... Very much adamant that it was. Hmm. <laughs> it's a good listen, that one. You should give that one a listen. If you were to listen to any Bob, I would say the Zardoz one's a good a good one to listen to. It's weird, because, like, I try not to be, like, a think, think analytically too much, because I think you can go down, like, a wormhole. But you can be like that with these, though, Simon. I remember in the past, you're like, oh, well, they screwed up that spot. Yeah. They've done that with a bit more ferocity, and therefore I'm not going five stars on it. Yeah, and I, I remember that phase, and I'm trying to, like, move on from that, <laughs> truth be told. I, um, mm. Because I think after a while, you just have to realise, like, did it entertain me? Did it do what it set out to do? But it's also, it's not, it's okay to think about it, you know? It's a little more complex than just those two questions, but you broadly get my drift. I think Meltzer should have owned it and said, for other people, this will be a four-star match. For the people in the crowd, they probably thought it was a four-star match. For me, it's a one or it's a two. Yeah. That's what you got to do. you got to say, I know people that enjoy date movie. Doesn't mean I'm going to give that a better rating than what it is, which is the worst film I've ever seen. I know there are co-workers that think those are good films. (laughs) <laughs> that's not going to make me say well because you liked it that makes it okay that's going to make me think because you like it that allows films like this to exist yeah I mean I can't even say it's like you know shyness on his part because he's what he loves a Twitter scrap does Dave he'll respond to people who he thinks are being idiots probably too much as you've mentioned so I can't even put it down to that it's, it's a, I, I think he's just made a bad call well, I think because he responds, he, he baits more people in because they think they'll get get attention. Mm, clout. Mm, precious clout. That's all they want. They want attention. And because he engages, they keep going. Yeah. But anyway, we can talk about this for ages. Maybe we should make it an LMTYS later on or a bonus episode. But as we were saying, and actually, even if there is a five-star match out next week, we probably won't be able to record it in time because of the ways the Observer comes out when this episode comes out and where Simon's going to be at that time. But anyway, if you want to get in touch with you, Simon, and talk more about the Wild Wild West, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm signing as Simon Cross Free, free for the number of W's in Wild Wild West. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A, as in all-time low attendance, N as in New Japan. 
That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Pod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time.